0: Uh, My name is Andrew. Uh, It's really good to be here. I usually do the announcements here at Cross Life, but tonight I get the the tremendous privilege to open up the Word of God with you. And uh, I wanted to tell you guys uh, how much I've appreciated it. I didn't think that I would get this. Oh, there we go. That sounds better. Um, I didn't think I would get this, but I've had a lot of people come up to me and say that they're so uh, excited for me to preach And I don't say that in an arrogant way, as if I'm glad that people are excited for me. But I I do that more as an encouragement. I haven't preached a whole lot. And so it's really been an encouragement to my heart that people are praying for me, praying with me as I've been studying and and spending time uh, for this. So I just wanted to say for all of you, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate it. And so first off, I want to recap a little bit on Deontay's talk. And Deontay last week taught on the inward mission of the church. And it was so helpful uh, am I right? Uh, I hope that it was helpful for you that we saw that the reason for the church is to equip uh, the saints to do the work of the ministry. And I was really appreciative of what Deontay said when he said, uh, you, the church, you believers, are important to ministry. And so I wanted to reemphasize and I wanted to say, please get this out of your head if it ever has been in your head that you are not important to do ministry. And it's only like pastors and missionaries who are the ones who should be doing ministry. Uh, Because that's just not true. And we saw that out of Ephesians 4, that he has given some to be pastors and teachers, evangelists, right? To equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And we saw that we're the body of Christ to honor and to serve him. And so tonight, the important topic that we're going to talk about is this. As the church, what is our role to the unbelieving world around us? How are we to live right now when we're aliens and sojourners to this world, as Peter says? Or when John states in 1 John uh, 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Have any of you thought about this question, what is my role, what am I supposed to be doing to the unbelieving world while I'm at Montana State, if you go there? Or what about when you're at work? What about when you're just doing life? You're going to the grocery store, you're stopping by Smith's, or you're, going, you're grabbing a pizza or something. What is my role to the unbelieving world around me, especially when I see a mass of people walking around living for this present world? The people that you know who are striving for everything that this world has to offer, sometimes they have the mentality of YOLO, and for those who uh, go to Bible college like myself who don't hear that very often, it means... You only live once, this mentality that you just live it up, that you go and you do everything you can for yourself. And the problem that comes into the Christian mind when we hear of of the world living like YOLO is Matthew 16, 26, because it says this, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And so it becomes a problem. And so then as Christians, we think, what do I do then? Uh, do I run away from unbelievers in the world system? Do I stop going to school? Do I just leave everything and live in the church building? Do I, do I cut myself off? But what about entertainment? That's a part of this world also. Like TV and movies. I mean, I'm sure you guys have I've thought about this as Christians. Or is this our only option, is to be totally separated from this world? And when I say that, as far as cutting myself off from completely having anything to do with it, can I still live in this world, but not of the world? And if so, how? This is the question, again, we are going to tackle together. What is our role as the church to the unbelieving world around us? and before we can really look at that important topic we need to better understand the world that we live in when i say world i'm not saying that we need to know geography like where the mountains are or where the rivers are even though they're beautiful and i'm not talking about countries or borders but what i'm talking about is more importantly the sinful world the bible has much to say about the sinfulness of humans And just how bad things can become. Turn with me to Genesis. That's the first book of the Bible. Turn with me to Genesis. And we're going to go to chapter 6 first. And I'm just going to give you a really a sweeping view of Genesis. Uh, First, in chapters 1 and 2, we see the creation account. Then in chapter 3, we see man falling into sin. Chapter 4, we see Cain murders Abel. Chapter 5 is we see a genealogy. And then in chapter 6, and this is where I want to talk, let's look, at, let's look at verse 5. And verse 5 says this, read along with me. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil Continually. And so as we look at this, what I want us to focus on is the the total change that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 when God says, what about creation? That it's good, right? And then by chapter 6 of Genesis, we see that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And then this. Every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. So the intent of the thoughts were only evil continually. So now look at verse 11 of the same chapter, chapter 6. And it says this, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh Had corrupted their way on the earth. So we see that man's sinfulness has totally corrupted the earth by Genesis chapter 6. And so we see clearly that man is wicked. And even in chapter 7, we're going to see a great flood where God judges that. And so now let's turn with me over to chapter 8 after the flood and God saves Noah and his family if you're familiar with the story and look at verse 21 and the Lord smelled a soothing aroma what that aroma is is Noah built an altar in verse 20 and he he sacrificed to the Lord God And let's continue in verse 21. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination or some translations say intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. And so we see here, again, we see God's mercy because God does not curse again, even though what do we find? We find that the imagination or the intention of man's heart is still evil from his youth. We would expect that as soon as God takes away uh, Genesis chapter 6, those people, oh, those were just wicked people. And as soon as he judges those, then we're going to move on. And yet God still says that man's heart is evil from his youth. And as we look at this, it makes sense because now look at our present world. Does it not make a little more sense that we have, that our hearts are wicked? I mean, look around us. I mean, just click on the news and you'll see about murders and killings and war, sexual immorality. And so if the, if, if the wickedness of man is true in Genesis, and, verse, and chapter 8 is moving forward into history, even to today, then it totally makes sense, doesn't it? The wickedness of man. And so maybe you're just thinking, well, that's an Old Testament passage. What does that really have to do with anything? And so now I'm going to read a passage in the New Testament talking about fami- the same things. And I want you to listen to it. Now, in the context of it, in 1 John chapter 2, this is really a test to see if you love the present world or if you love God. And so I'm not trying to... Uh, say that this is exactly what First John is, but it's going to help us a little bit with some of the things that we see in this world. And so we're in First John chapter two, verses 15 through 17. And listen to John when he says this: "Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, right there. That's the test John is talking about. For all that is in the world, number one, the desires of the flesh. And the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so I, I want to make this statement that this doesn't mean that we don't love the people that are in the world. That has nothing to do, it's talking about this world system. Because if we said we don't love the people who are caught up in this world system, then we're going to contradict a lot of other Bible verses that tell us to love others, aren't we? What this is saying is don't love the world that produces the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And another warning that we saw in those verses is that this is passing away. It's not from the Father. It's going to go away. So don't trust in it. Don't hope in it. And we're also told who the ruler of this age is, and that's found in Ephesians chapter 2, and it's Satan. It's anti-God. And that's exactly what our our society is doing that we live in, right? It's anti-God. There's no fear of God. There's no care for what His Word says. And so now I want to zoom into our present time because I believe this is true of us today where we live I mean what's going on today I mean this is just a short one and we look in scripture all the time but I just you can do this because we're so re- we see it so regularly sexual immorality and drunkenness stealing lying cheating slander and the list goes on and on it's not hard to notice these things of the world and it's amazing to me, as I talk with non-Christians, either I'm up on campus or I'm in an airport or I'm just somewhere else, and I look at them and I say, would you say that where you see people today, are they good or are they bad? Are they evil? Are they, are, are they righteous? Or are they wicked? And even non-Christians over and over again tell me, people are wicked They use money and they use power and they're constantly trying to uh, wreck each other's lives with war and envy and strife. And so this is not even new. Non-Christians agree with me. I haven't had anybody say that people aren't wicked yet. And I've asked that quite a few times. And so when when we get to Matthew 5, which thank you, Eli, for making us read Matthew 5. I don't know if you did this on purpose, but that's the exact text that we're going to go to tonight. Um. But we're introduced to the topic now of the unbelieving world, which I just described, and hopefully we have a better idea of what that is. And now we come to what I think is a great text talking about this issue. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. And we're going to go to chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 1 through 12 to get us a running start into our verses of 13 through 16. So read with me and follow along, or don't read with me, but follow along as I read. Uh, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I don't have time to develop all of these, obviously, because most preachers spend one sermon on every single verse, in here and I don't have the time to do that but what I do want us to highlight and what I do want us to look at is the stark contrast of what Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 5 and what the world what I just read about the wickedness of it and and I just think back on 1st John 2 and chapter or chapter 2 verse 15 talks about the desires of the eyes the desires of the flesh and the boastful pride of life And Jesus here begins with, Blessed or happy are you. And notice I'm going to highlight a few of them, and it said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's exactly opposite of self sufficiency. And then we go, Blessed are those who mourn, mourning over their sin. And then we go, Blessed are the meek. And that's opposite of being totally out of control. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And yet, the contrast is the world says, Happy or blessed are you when you make a lot of money, when you have a lot of partners, when you're really well known. So do you see Jesus teaching something totally different here in Matthew chapter 5? And notice also the response Jesus talks about at the end. Persecution. Be exceedingly glad. Talk about being so totally different in our culture. Yeah, right. I don't want any persecution. And this little introduction now brings us to our text And so now let's turn to verses 13 through 16, which now we're going to kind of talk about and dissect together. Uh, Follow along as I read. You are the light of the earth, or the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And what we always want to ask ourselves when we're really digging in is what was the author's intent and what would have the audience understood by the terms? So to get us started, who here has a refrigerator? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, pretty much everybody. Some people didn't want to vote. They thought I would call on them or something, as Scott Morningstar would say. Uh, And you're probably asking, I just said you need to know author's intent and what the audience would understand. And yet you say, I don't see any refrigerator in here, Andrew. And in fact, they probably didn't even have electricity. So I'm not sure what that has to do with anything. But what it does have to do with is that salt in this time period would be rubbed on meat so that it wouldn't rot. And so I make the connection between our refrigerator and some meat is that we would stick our meat in the refrigerator now. They would rub salt all over it to try to preserve it. Does that make sense? Everybody's got it. Hopefully, no nods. Okay, one nod. Good. Good. Okay. In fact, salt was so very important at this time that soldiers would sometimes get paid in salt. And so salt is a very precious commodity for these people that are listening to Jesus, say that you are the salt of the earth. So, <clears throat> Jesus here is telling his followers to be preservative, preservatives on this earth. Your actions and your attitudes can preserve this earth from either even further decay. Do we see, when we talk about the wickedness, right, of this world, and then we think as Christians we're different and we're salting this earth. And the interesting thing found in the Greek, I had to ask Matt, he's my little Greek scholar friend, and he said that when the you is at the beginning, and this is how it is in the Greek, it's emphatic, or what it means is that Jesus is saying you and you alone as Christians are the salt of the earth. We talked earlier about the wickedness of man, and now we have to ask the question, how can I be a preservative in this world? Well, first we need to be out and about in this world. Not afraid or totally separate from non-Christians in this world, in the sense of not being willing to engage with the world. But again, I will repeat what First John says in 1 John 2, don't be of the world, but be willing to engage with the world. Let me give you an example from my own life. I there's coworkers telling me or telling a story and I walk up and he's, he swears and he turns to me and he says, "Sorry." Okay, now why would a non-Christian turn to me when he's telling a story and say, "Sorry?" And I think the reason is it's because he knew that I was a Christian. I think that he recognized that that was not right because I don't use that speech. And people actually talk differently around you when you're a Christian. They really do. They probably aren't going to tell wicked stories around you uh, about all all the drugs or all the sex that they've had. Usually they don't tell Christians that because they recognize they don't really want to hear it. And also as Christians, we shouldn't be telling others stories that would cause them to sin either. If you tell an impure joke, really, you're helping others to sin. In a sense, I don't want to take this too far, but we're keeping people from sinning further by our influence. Now, as the salts of the world, and the second thing on our outline is that it adds flavor. And the world is all the same in the sense that they're following this world's thinking. As Christians, is it true that people are going to just love us for what we believe? The answer is no, because Jesus even says blessed in verse 11 are you when you revile or when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. So flavoring can't just be that they're going to love us more. That is tough to swallow, isn't it? Flavoring this world then is living very different than this world. When something is flavored, it goes from bland to tasting better. Christians are to be an agent God uses to slow down the decaying of the world and also an agent to add flavor to this wicked age. Think about this. If you're grumbling or complaining, as Philippians 2 says, or if you're not grumbling and complaining, as Philippians 2 says, you're very different to the world than you're, that you're living in. And again... That does not mean people will really like the flavor. But it will certainly add flavor. So what about the rest of the verse, though? Let's go back to verse 13. We've just kind of talked about salt. So continuing, it says, But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. The answer to that question is that salt doesn't, and it is good for nothing, it doesn't lose its components. The warning here is that salt becomes diluted, and once it's diluted, the value is completely gone. There's really no use for it. So don't be like the world and get diluted by it. With the context right before about persecution that we find, It may be easy as persecution comes to be less salty. But whatever the cause to lose our saltiness, the warning is the same. Do not get deluded and lose your saltiness. Just to clarify, because I don't want to be misunderstood, Jesus is not teaching here you can lose your salvation, or if you haven't acted this way before, as if you're useless from here on out. You know, once. I think I'm the deluded one, so obviously I can't ever be used again. What this is, though, is a great warning that if you're not being salty right now, this shows you how useless you are being. I'm not trying to be harsh, but I hopefully I'm encouraging you to be salty. Okay, now let's look at verse 14 and 15. We've just talked about Salt. Now we're going, you are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let's now turn to our second instruction for believers as the church and its light. The Bible teaches about light and darkness often in contrast with each other in terms of good and evil or righteousness and wickedness. Jesus, again, the order of the sentence is saying that you and you alone as Christians are the light of the world. In John, Jesus repeatedly says, I am the light of the world. When Jesus says he is the light of the world and then tells us we are the light of the world, it should cause us to be amazed that we have the great privilege to represent him. The Old Testament and the Jews that would have been present listening to Jesus would have understood Jesus' teaching on being the light of the world. As William Barclay wrote of the Jews, no man kindled his own light. So the Jewish people considered themselves the light to the Gentiles because of being the people of God. They never would have thought, though, that in themselves they somehow produced this light. This is what is being said in Ephesians 5.8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Do you see, we are the light in the Lord as his church. So we are not getting our light from inside of ourselves, but instead we are getting our light from the Lord Jesus Christ who is in us. That's important. And what, am, what is amazing about this passage is it should strike all of us again with the tremendous privilege as Christians we have. The light of the world. And Jesus says, you and you alone. Now that we have the light through our relationship we have with Jesus Christ, what is a way that we are lights then for him? And turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're in Matthew, and so we're going to go past all the Gospels, uh, John, and then Acts. We're going to go past Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Go eat pork chops, so E, so Galatians, Ephesians. Uh, I just heard that one. I like that one a lot. Go eat pork chops. Uh, Go to chapter 5. We're going to verse 3. And uh, follow along as I read. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. So we hear, we see Paul is writing to believers, saints, believers, right? Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator unclean person no covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience therefore do not be partakers with them and so we see that the wrath of God is coming for the reasons listed above, and that as Christians we should never be partaking in these things. And so, looking at verse eight, as we continue, we see, for for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness and truth finding out what is acceptable to the lord so now we see here darkness for you once were in darkness so that must be referring to earlier and now we're light in the lord so walk as children of light continuing on verse 11. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Uh, Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. And so, why I brought us here is because really of verse 11, and have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness. What this isn't saying is saying hide from all the people who were in this because it's even saying that before you were in darkness, but it's saying do not have fellowship with the works of darkness. So this does not justify us not having any non-believers or never talking to them. But what does it say? But rather expose them. And I know that this is talking to Christians to expose the darkness in each other's life or uh, before. In verse verse 6, it says, Let no one deceive you. So somehow it seems as if it's implied that someone who's trying to deceive you, that you could continue to be a part of these things as Christians. But as we expose darkness by living godly, as it says in here, It's interesting that I think one of the best ways we can help non believers is to expose them that they are of the world, to help them see that they're a part of this world, the domain of darkness. And so that's the first one that as light we expose. We expose. And I was trying to think of examples. And throughout Acts, Peter and Paul telling people of their sin, exposing the wrongness of the society. Jesus is doing this constantly with the Pharisees, correcting them, showing them their error, exposing their falseness. Right? And so the second part, not only do lights expose, but they also guide. When it's dark, you're on an airplane. I don't know if you've ever done this. You're looking out your window and you're, you know you're about to land because you have to put your, your tray up and you have to, you know, people are checking to make sure that you're buckled and everything. And you look out the window when it's dark and you look out and if you've ever seen the runway, man, that thing is lit up. I mean, it is guiding you to the runway, In a spiritual sense, as Christians, we are living in such a way, we are guiding people not to an airport, but to God. We are lights for all to see in a sin-cursed world. What the tendency can be, though, is that as we live as lights, we're flying in the face and we're exposing the darkness, and people don't really like that. We, by our actions and words, are exposing this world for what it is. We as Christians tend to want to hide, especially as we are called bigots or narrow-minded or fun killers or whatever you're called, but it's not that pleasant. We are guiding people to Christ, though, by, ex- by exposing the darkness and guiding people to the Lord. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians five twenty and 21, we're ambassadors. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, You made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love those verses. I love them. And as we think about as lights, I want us to think about what it's saying. We are ambassadors for Christ. The light, Jesus says, I am the light. Then he says, we are the light. So we're ambassadors for Christ. And God's making an appeal through us as light. And then as lights, we're begging people to come to Christ. We're leading them to Christ. We're showing them Christ. And by this, we're exposing this world Confronting lies and telling the truth. Another example that I found in John 5 is Jesus is talking to a group of Jews, and they said that you were willing to stand in John the Baptist's light for a time. So they were willing to listen to the message, they were getting exposed, and then it was too much and they left. Right? So, turn with me back to Matthew chapter 5. So, we've talked about salt and we've talked about the beginning of light here. So, let's see what else Jesus is teaching. Verse 14 You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So look at what Jesus continues to say. A city on a hill can't be hidden. And it's a more of a statement, but it's true, isn't it? I mean, just think about it. There's no way that you're going to hide a whole city who's already elevated on a hill. And it isn't just... You're not just going to be able to hide. And so guess what, Christian? If you're living the way you should, and with the context, the beatitude, so that heart attitude, saltiness, being light, guess what? You're not going to be hidden, or you at least shouldn't be. And look at what verse 15 continues to say, Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So I'm not trying to insult your intelligence by any means, but the answer is no. Why would I light a lamp and then stick it, stick something over it so that the light didn't do anything? That really doesn't make any sense. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is teaching here. And this is a hard saying, Christian, but if you're not living in a way that exposes this world, that guides people to the truth of God, you're this lamp hidden under the basket. We shouldn't be hidden under the basket. You're not saved by God to live for this world or to look just like it, and guess what? Or to completely hide from it either. I would ask you even now to think about this. Ask God to help you see am I being that lamp hidden under a basket in the context that I am? Let's continue to look at verse 16 let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And I love it. It says, let your light so shine before men. Let it be out there. Let it be seen. In the same way as the city is set on the hill and that can't be hidden and just like a lit lamp which is set somewhere so that everything can be seen, let your light so shine. Before men, to this evil generation. I want to look at this little phrase uh, that they may see your good works. Some have said that this is just doing good things. And there is a Greek word that's kind of generic for doing good things, but that's not the word that's used here. Instead, there's a word that means in a winsome, beautiful, attractive manner. That is the word used here. It's not merely doing good things, but doing things attractively, beautifully, in a winsome way. We get this light from Christ. We talked about the light. We get it from Christ to glorify, as we continue, the Father who is in heaven. All of our efforts in this Christian life is to glorify God. Amen? Amen. Amen. When we are in the midst of this dark and perverse world, we are there for the glory of God. And I heard this from Paul Washer, and it's so helpful. When we're out in this dark world, and we say that the only thing, and I'm not saying that this, is the only, this isn't a bad thing, but people say, well, I just love people so much. He says, you're going to have to have a little bit more stability For when you go into a city and you preach and all those people that you say that you love pick you up and throw you outside of the city and you're going to have to come back. And I think where it's found is that we are living for the glory of God. And this is so instructive of how we do this. Looking at the Beatitudes with the character that we ought to have and that we should be salt and light. We see that doing this for the glory of God reminds us of who God is. That he loved this world in this way that he sent his son to it. This wicked generation, this wicked people. So this is not being salt and light. Don't don't misunderstand me. In a negative, harsh way. That has nothing to do with it. But in a way that brings glory to God. And this is hard in our society to do good works so that people see and glorify our God in heaven because we have a lot of moral people that do good things in our society. And they don't know if we're Mormons or if we're, you know, some other, uh, we're just moral people. But I think that when God says that you and you alone are the salt of the earth, speaking of the church, and you and you alone are the light of the world, Our character, only God can produce this character that we see in Matthew 5. And so I think as we have this character, and as we're exposing and we're leading people to Christ, they will see that it is for the glory of the Father and not some worldly reason. I mean, he's the one who gave us the light, and we ought to worship and praise him. And as a now as I wrap up our time together, I want to challenge you here tonight. To the people here who are not Christians, I hope by God's grace that this is exposing you of to what world that you're living in. And, and I don't want to be harsh towards you, but I want to help you see the world that is all around us and the wickedness of ourselves. And yet God sent his son to pay for that sin and then I beg that you would that you would turn you would repent you would come to Christ that you would walk towards the light the Christian Christianity is not some blind leap into the dark but Christianity says you come to the light you get out of darkness and you come towards the light and you'll be exposed and so I beg you non-christian that you would come to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness We saw in Ephesians 5 that the wrath of God is coming on those of disobedience. And when we see those, we recognize that there's no way that we can hold that standard. That we need someone to take our place. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. And so for you believers... I would again call you to take some time and think about, am I being salt and light in the context of where God has me? I don't want us as the church to be useless salt, being diluted by this world. And I don't want us to be the light that's hid under the basket, because for God's glory, I want us to be out in the world for his namesake. And so I would encourage you to be bold for Christ and for his glory. In word and in action. Let's pray together. Father, it's, it's uh, such a privilege to open up your word and to look at what you say about being salt and light. And what a tremendous privilege. Uh, we often say that you didn't have to use us. And yet you call us light. You call us salt for your namesake and for your glory. God, I ask that you would help us to do that. I I ask that you would help us uh, to see if we're not doing that, if we're not being salt, if we're not being light, if there's fears or if there's hesitancies for any reason, that we'd be more concerned with the glory of God and bringing your name praise. God, we certainly want that. We want your name to be lifted high. I pray for unbelievers here that they would see the light, that they would be exposed, that they would see that there's forgiveness and compassion and mercy found in our Lord Jesus Christ. God, thank you for granting me uh, your grace to stand before you. Uh, Thank you for these people that have come. To your name be the glory forever and ever. Amen.